if you're a JPEG collection and your price just collapsed 99%, you know, like, you know, buy a contigo, amigo, like, you know, good luck. This is why I think, again, nuance. I am highly skeptical of artists moving into this direction without being very thoughtful and music royalties on chain, like all of that. I want to believe it. I just think it's, it's challenging. This episode is brought to you by Toku. If you are planning to launch a token, already have a live token, are granting employees or contractors vesting token awards, or are just trying to figure out how to take care of taxable token events for your team, from easy to use token grant award templates through tracking vesting to managing tax withholdings. Make it simple today with Toku. Welcome back, everyone. We ended the last uh, pod you have Tommy and Ryan again, yet again, uh, two of my favorite people in the space. And we ended the last series pod talking about things that are overlooked in a bear market. And we were talking about investing, right? And certain, I mean, we could continue on that track here. There's just so many things that, you know, we've, we've gone through, we've invested in a number of categories. We've gone through multiple cycles. The industry looks very different, but yet the same in many ways. So anyways, um, I guess in that vein uh, you know, we don't want to go too deep on current events. Obviously, the front and center is FTX. There's a lot of things that have come to light that I think a lot of the industry got right at the time things were going down. There's a lot of speculation. We can go into that. Uh, we can talk about um, a lot of the different counterparties. Of course, with all this, there's FUD that comes up, right? There's FUD around Tether and the you know, FTX was very involved in Tether and minting um, USDT. Um, and so of course, there's some takes that are good. There's other takes that are just, you know, spreading FUD. So I'll kick it off to you, Ryan. I mean, maybe along this kind of thread of things that are overlooked, one of the things that we talk about a lot is FUD. It could be paralyzing, but it is also really important to like call out and be, you know, surface the truth and when you see it. So anyways, uh, we, we were talking about Binance. We were talking about Tether. There's the FTX stuff. I know you wanted to talk about this, so I'll pass it on to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that is definitely overlooked in in the space is, and we've seen this, and we we we're all paying the bill, is the collateral damage of bad actors, and you know, the solution over time is to lift up some of the citizen journalism that calls out uh, things that like don't quite add up, you know. Um, uh, Jesse from Kraken this past week, uh, you know, went on record stating that it was very obvious to them that just like the two plus two equals four math did not add up with respect to FTX. And, and they knew because they knew their own business that, that there was something amiss. Brian Armstrong has said the same, that he kind of like knew FTX's volumes. And because of that, their expenses, like there, there was something very clearly uh, amiss. And I think hopefully as we move forward, we, we pay attention and, and people are willing to do the call outs. Like it's kind of tough to put yourself out there and, and like call out a powerful organization that could potentially be operating correctly. It could potentially not be operating correctly. You know, yeah, this pod we have, we've discussed what are the implications of, of whether Binance is, is, is doing some things incorrectly with respect to their chain or with respect to their exchange. Um, a lot of people have, uh, have questions about, uh, about tether. Um, and, 
And this is an interesting thing because yes, you need to call out the organizations that are potentially doing incorrect things, but then there is a nuance that I think needs to prevail. So for example, I have a lot of questions about Binance and I'm very concerned. I, I, you know, I'm not touching anything Binance at this moment. Tether, on the other hand, I, you know, I've sat with Paulo. I, I know this organization to just be one of the best companies in crypto. It's certainly one of the most profitable companies in crypto. And my own analysis of it is that most of the FUD is being driven from, um, you know, competitors that wish they had such an amazing business, right? Like Tether throws off three to $5 billion free cash flow every single year. Um, it is an extraordinary business and a lot of people, you know, wish they had, wish they had that. And, and so that causes the like, oh, you know, are they collateralized? Are they not? You know, the reality is, is that they're collateralized with off-chain assets fully. And then they're even more collateralized, probably close to 180, 200% collateralized when you add in um, their Bitcoin position and their crypto position. So I actually look at it as a very, very de-risked organization. That's different than FTX. That's different than Binance. And, and we have to have that nuance and understanding that like not all big uh, off-chain organizations in the space are, are bad. But when we do see something that we, that we uh, you know, are concerned about, that we investigate it further. And, you know, I did that with Tether and I came out the other side being like, actually, you know what? This is a really great business and they've done a great job. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, one of the crazy things is like it, it kind of comes down to memory. Like we have Mt. Gox and yet fast forward nine, 10 years and we have FTX and nobody really cares about proof of reserves, right? Like it's like we learn the lesson and then we forget about it. And then we have to learn the lesson all over again. So I don't know what like changes this time around that, you know, we're not going to have to learn this lesson again in five years. That's a really good question. I mean, I think I do want to make a distinction back to your point, Ryan, on nuance. Mt. Gox was an issue where my understanding was that they had a bug in the system where they didn't catch the, like the withdrawal math just wasn't adding up. The people running Mt. Gox, you could argue, were incompetent, but I don't think they were doing things in a fraudulent manner. Whereas FTX was just everything that has come out to light is fraudulent. They were taking customer assets and then using them for other purposes, political donations, investments in things like Anthropic that may or may not pan out and make us all whole. But still, that, that's, that's fraud. Um, and so it's a very big, important distinction. The question is, and I think it's a right one and a good one, Tommy, which is there's probably another FTX out there. Maybe not to that level of magnitude, but fraud is fraud and it still hurts people. Um, you could argue that some of the hacks on chain of, of protocols were those inside jobs or the, were they not? Like this re-entrancy attacks in the code at this point, if you're a project and you have a, like a re-entrancy like vulnerability in your code base, that's just like negligent, borderline fraudulent to the point that I'm going to be suspicious that it's an inside job because it is, you know, it, it's at this point, the, like there are no excuses if you have this type of stuff. Um, and so, Ryan, I want to go back to something you said, which is really interesting. You mentioned like <clears throat> now, of course, after things, after the dominoes fall, a lot of people come out and say, we told you so. We knew something was wrong. 
but how vocal were these people? Like how vocal was Jesse or Brian um, publicly, or maybe they went to regulators and they didn't want to listen because FTX was the charm and was the best and had all the, you know, checked all the boxes for, I'm just kind of curious how yeah, all that unfolded. You're right. I mean, I think privately, a lot of us were having this conversation, but none of us really were, were saying it publicly because at the time, Sam had, a, you know, an incredible amount of political power and like, we're all just trying to make our way in the world and, and, and nobody needs to, to procure unnecessary fights. Right. And, and so for, for another CEO of an exchange to, uh, to call out a different CEO, like imagine like Brian Armstrong calling out Jesse or, or vice versa, like there's sort of a decorum uh, of respect that, that I think most executives confer to other executives in the space that unless you have real evidence, um, you could be slapped with a, you know, with a, a slander or libel suit and that, and that's going to be a distraction is nobody wants that. Um, but I mean, like I, we, I had conversations with, you know, with you guys, uh, uh, talking about how things didn't quite add up with, with FTX at, uh, at that time. Um, but we were not, you're correct in that we were not explicit enough. Um, and there weren't enough people, uh, really calling it out. Um, I give them a pass because I understand they're just trying to run their own business, but we clearly need to get beyond that. And we need to, to like, we need to self-regulate as an org, as an industry. Otherwise, the regulation that we're going to be subject to is going to be, uh, I think, far worse in, mm-hmm. in in the end. And so, hopefully, hopefully, people have more courage next time around, and we catch it earlier, and we call it out earlier. Yeah, uh, Tommy, I want to go back to you on things that are overlooked beyond the kind of FOD. But what is interesting, Ryan, to your point is. During the uh, testimony of Caroline, she mentioned one of the um, priorities of Sam was to put regulators onto Binance. Uh, and I think that might have been the catalyst for CZ to say, not only were they looking at the flow, right, that Alameda was transferring into the into Binance to, to ARP some tokens, but they were huge holders of FTT. And at some point, they probably caught wind of this and they said, enough is enough, right? And you just, uh, and that was kind of really the trigger. Um, I think Sam did a huge damage in the industry. I mean, I was, uh, he was very vocal of DeFi, critical of DeFi, naturally, right? <laughs> he was against transparency. And I think we're at a very interesting crux here. I hope that uh, even with this whole like Israel-Palestine situation where people are saying, oh, well, look at Hamas, you know, they've received crypto and, you know, Senator Warren is being very, very critical of crypto. Whereas the reality is Hamas even told their donors, like, guys, stop sending Bitcoin. It's it's transparent, and you're going to put a target on your back, and then their their donations really cliffed off of crypto. Um, but it is really important to 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 be nuanced uh, and just to understand. Like we should be asking all of these organizations, like, hey, proof of reserves, like, just procure them. There's really no um, there's no excuse at this point. Uh, Tommy and I, you and I, are both investors in this company called Test Machine. I just saw the demo. Like there should be, and it's like a company is like building a detection solution to like in real time, like basically it's an, like a, a model that has been trained to detect certain vulnerabilities in the code. Um, 
And I think something like that is is a fantastic thing because clearly audits are not enough. Audits and bounties also not enough. So what else can we do? I think we as investors can say, hey, if I'm going to invest in your company, then you need to have these things. You need to have obviously audits and bounties, but also use solutions out there to prevent uh, you know, attacks, to close in on the surface area or the potential surface area and to like mitigate like yeah. uh, exploits and bugs. I think that's really when, when the investors really, I think the best investors can really say, hey, we're going to do this deal, but you need to do X and Y constantly because things can't break. Do you think that yeah. one of the overlooked things in the space today because of of what's happened with vulnerabilities in in DeFi as well as the hacks and lack of proof of reserves on chain is this kind of SaaS era where like, you know, Fireblocks has come out of nowhere and is now, I think, one of the top 10 uh, highest valued companies in the space. You guys just mentioned that uh, this new service that comes up. We use Hibernative. We use, in fact, we use for our yielding, we use close to a dozen different services that have different sort of like alerts and um, and checkpoints against code and things like that to automate our our due diligence on on pools and on on projects. Do you think like are we seeing the emergence of the SaaS era in crypto? Yeah, I mean, just a couple things. I mean. To go back to Santiago's point, I I do think it is on us to like help allocate and secure crypto for the for the future, right? Like two checks that we're really excited about is one is what Santiago mentioned. Test Machine is an AI model built by ex DARPA guys, really smart guys, and instead of waiting six months for an audit, a developer plugs in their GitHub code, automatically gets an audit, automatically gets fixes, right? That's helping to fix the on chain world. The other thing we did recently was Heights Labs, right? Which is an automated, automatic evidence graph following a hacker and the flow of funds. You could hand this to a government official and get a subpoena or a warrant, you know, ASAP, instead of having to go through this manual process uh, with the larger competitors we all know. So I don't know. I think it is on us to help, you know, do that. And look, there are opportunities to make money there, right? And then on the flip side, we need to protect the, the centralized world more, right? Like, I think we all have a lot of trust in Kraken and Coinbase, but... Again, we can't just totally trust them because they're the comparison, right? We need to push for proof of reserves and we got to, you know, we have to until we get it. Yeah. Switching gears, but staying on on FTX, you know, a lot of capital allocators had some exposure to it, either capital in FTX or, or uh, you know, portfolio projects that had treasury and, and FTX. Um, how are you guys looking at the situation of the OTCs, you know, with Anthropic? Now there's been like some excitement around recovery. Um, if you look at the history of the space, uh, recovery from bankruptcies is a very long protracted process. Um, the current OTC is about 38 to 40 cents. You know, do you take that and hope for 150% return profile in ETH over the next two to three years, expecting that the actual payout of FTX will be two to three years down the road, or uh, or, are, or do you stay patient and and now you're an indirect owner of Anthropic, uh, hoping for that to have a $100 billion payout and then you get made whole? It's, it's kind of wild how Anthropic came out of left field to make 
FTX people whole. But um, outside the point, I'll uh, I'll take one side here. I would rather take the forty or fifty cents, uh, put it in liquid crypto, and and hopefully ride that up. And the reason is uh, maybe a bit different than the money. I just wouldn't want to mentally have to wake up every day for the next two or three years wondering what my payout is going to be. It would just kill my energy and mental state. I think. Santiago, Santiago what's your um, what's your take on that? Well, it depends on the kind of person and investor you are, right? Because, you know, sometimes it, it's like it's like if you have a locked position in a vacuum, you say, "Oh God, yeah." I would have just rode that until, uh, you know, ETH at, uh, and sold at 3,800, like mark the top. Really? Like some people are just not, um, are not good at managing their portfolio. Um, I go back to, look, I mean, I think these claims traded at the lowest point at 8 cents on the dollar, uh, right? A couple of weeks or a month into the collapse of FTX. A lot of people picked them up. Um uh, you have to be wondering, I mean, there, there are, I think there's a lot of interest from sophisticated players that are like, you know, savvy in terms of litigation finance as a category, uh, or even distress hedge funds out there that are saying, Hey, 40 cents on the dollar. They're looking at the book. They're looking at the investments. They feel fairly comfortable. So it depends on the type of investor that you are. Um, I would say I would side with Tommy here. Uh, I know we're supposed to like disagree, but I, I would also take it because I have more confidence in my ability to outperform and manage kind of my own capital versus what worries me here the most is the people that always win in this process is the lawyers. I mean, they are charging an arm and a leg. It's just, it's just to your point, Ryan, I mean, if this process drags out years, uh, there's going to be a material um, kind of net payout I say net because gross would be like, you know, net like after expenses, which are really mounting. And I do worry about that. Uh, I do think that it's not as simple math as, oh, look, Entropic's about 100 billion. Oh, great. We're made whole. I think it's going to get more and more complicated. Um, although there's a fair amount of, um, depends on what you have too, right? I mean, I don't recall, but I mean, I think if people as, as part of filing your claim, you obviously have to kind of agree with the amounts and stuff, but there's also, ooh, I guess there's this, the hack that happened right as the collapse was unfolding. Like I'm not confident lawyers understand key management better than uh, people that have been in the space for longer. Right. Uh, if you, I just don't, uh, I think there's gaps there. I worry about that of their ability to really custody these assets put him in a safe spot. So for all of those kind of structural reasons, I'd rather take the money now. Yeah. I think you guys hit the nail on the head in the, the two items that a, if you're a capital allocator, you need to, to remember and prioritize your mind space and, and like, you know, focusing on that and B, as much as FTX was an all time grift, the unwind is going to be just like, an absolute fiesta of grift. And these lawyers are just skinning the thing. They have no, have no incentive to push this forward. Uh, and if we look at, yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need to pack a law firm. Conferences well, know, and crypto lawyers have been the most yep. profitable, highest ROI <laughs> enterprises in the industry. Unless you're like a CDM <laughs> in Ethereum, like, yeah. you wouldn't have outperformed these folks. 
Yeah. Uh, good. So other things that you guys are seeing uh, under the radar in this bear market, you know, w- what are some things that you're you're excited about that people are not paying enough attention to? Um, I mean, one thing that I don't have fully fledged out thoughts on, but I'm struggling with is is chains backing projects on chains outside of Ethereum and all the ZK EVMs, VMs built on top around it, Solana and Cosmos. Like I'm really struggling to back projects outside of that world because like, as you guys know, like bear market sucks. Excitement and capital isn't here. Users aren't really here. Obviously we're investing a ways out, but having to take like normal venture risk and then having to take like, you know, TBD platform risk on top of that on a Alt L1 or an L2 is just, sorry, an Alt L1, it just gets really hard. Um, And we are seeing a lot of deals on other ecosystems because they all have giant ecosystem funds. They're all backing these projects. So they come across as legit and they are, they have great founders and stuff, but I don't know. It just gets hard to get excited about it. Maybe it's a basic take, but yeah. You know, my, my former uh, partners over the web three foundation, particularly parody just announced a major round of layoffs. And I think that that is mostly in recognition of a, there's too much centralization in building out most of these chains. Like if your team is the only one building out apps and infrastructure and wallets and integrations and things like that, you know, you got to probably look yourself in the mirror and ask if, if you've got organic community, I think in, in the case of Polkadot, they do have organic community, but the question is, you know, will these, will these projects that have an order of magnitude less a developer and, and like community interest have survivability, right? I think we all have confidence in ETH, you know, it's hit escape velocity, it's hit network effects on developer my chair. Then from there, it kind of like falls off really, really quickly. Um, I've mentioned to you guys before that we did a, a piece of analysis a few weeks ago that compared uh, sort of the three generations that we've seen of blockchains or of smart contract scripty platforms. So Gen 1, Ethereum, Gen 2, the kind of like ETH killers, sort of Cardano, Solana, Polkadot, Definity, um, these guys of like the 2017, 2018 era. And then Gen 3, which is like Celestia, you know, Fuel Wormhole and the, the ZKVM uh, layer twos that are kind of like 2020 and beyond projects. And what we've, what we observed is that after a 180 day sort of like honeymoon period, the Gen 2 projects underperformed ETH over time to a man, not a single one outperformed ETH beyond the 180 day mark. And then that now we're seeing the Gen 3 pop up and we're seeing continued erosion in those Gen 2 alternative layer ones in favor of these things that, that integrate with Ethereum natively. So the layer twos and then these, these new layer ones that come out of the box like with apps, with privacy, with integration with Ethereum. And those are ultimately accruing value to Ethereum while extracting value from the generation two. And we're seeing this kind of like slow drip and decline from 
in in value and community from from Gen two blockchains. And that's not a a judgment on the quality of 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 these these Gen two blockchains. And many of them may come back like a Solana or a Polkadot, but at the same time, the vast majority uh, are on a slow march to death. Um, that's that's very clear. Um, yeah. The- the other thing too is like, I know it's early stages for, it's like you're an app developer, right? And you have to figure out where you want to launch a project, right? So obviously you want money, you want users, you want liquidity, yada, yada, yada. And there might be technical reasons why you want to launch your own chain, right? So you potentially launch on Cosmos, right? And people knock Cosmos, but it has some of, you know, it houses some of the largest names we know, right? Like ThorChain for cross-chain swaps, DYDX, Akash, I can go on and on, Right. Like these are projects that had real technical reasons to need customizations in their chain and their life. The issue though, for the alt chains is the reason to launch there is starting to decrease because now you can launch or soon you can launch a roll up and post data to Eigen or Celestia and have the customizability you want with the fast speeds and low fees. So the reasons to launch on alt L1 are now going to go down. Now let's fast forward a year or two instead of doing a roll up and rolling down to Eigen or Celestia now you launch on a ZK EVM or ZK VM and you get the magic of, you know, never having to do a fraud proof ever and um, having the speed and low cost you need. So I don't know, the, the arc of technology for me is very much bearish that Alt L1 cycle to your point, Ron. I mean, I, I generally agree with you guys and I made this mistake because I've invested in a lot of these, right? Uh, over the like Filecoin, Brian, both you and I were early investors there. Uh, looked at Definity, uh, you know, uh, have invested in a number of others, probably because as one, a hedge to Ethereum, I generally think we're still very, very early. Two, I also believe that it will be a multi-chain world. And one of the things that probably doesn't get talked about enough is the connectivity between chains. One of the more probably underrated things, Tommy had a great thread about this Cosmos, which is one of the more underrated ecosystems. I think it has great, fantastic tech. Like IBC took a while to launch. It was hugely delayed. But in spite of all the clusterfuck that happened within um, Tendermint as an organization, they they eventually shipped it. And um, I remember talking to Zaki and Jack because, um, you know, they, they're continuing to develop. And, and my question to them was, hey, could IBC at some point like connect to Ethereum in the same way that it connects like um, – different parachains or not parachains, uh, uh, but different like cosmos chains. And he's like, absolutely. Like we're working on that. Uh, and it could be. And so my, my, my view here is at the end of the day, I think we're incredibly early still. Um, now, if you ask me what I've done, yeah, most of my investments are in Ethereum because that's uh, today the mind share that the, both developer and the attention from the retail, if you want to call it that or institutional is on Ethereum and Solana on the margin. And everything else from that is just drops off dramatically. But I think the in a fast forward to five years from now, people will not care where these things settle. Ultimately, they'll care about the result. Um, and I do think, you know, I think it's too early for me to have enough, like absolute certainty, which I never have on anything. But I do think it's still worthwhile to pay attention to things that are happening uh, particularly in Cosmos, particularly also in L2s. But um, one of the other things that has brought was brought to my attention during um, uh, the BlockWorks conference, permissionless, was Filecoin. Uh, as, as a chain that has probably, most people are not paying attention to, 
but they're building some, I mean, they have some fascinating like proof of replicability, proof of retrievability. They they pioneer some really interesting stuff. Um, And, and so I do wonder a lot of these call it left for dead chains have continued to develop have continued to make progress and are not on the limelight, but they're very well capitalized and they have some really smart people working there. So in a world of open source, the question to you both is, should we be paying more attention to stuff like Filecoin or, you know, Cosmos? Um, I'm just kind of curious how, how you think about that. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, definitely interested. I, the Filecoin side did come up a lot at, that conference. I wish there was like a track or a panel to, to figure out who was building on that. But Ryan, I, I know you probably have better thoughts here. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I, I observe about Filecoin is that the protocol labs team is the most talent dense team in the entire space. It is extraordinary. It is just like, uh, like such high intellectual horsepower top to bottom in that in that group and just you know remembering that they've built a number of protocols that are all very useful in the space lib p2p and and ipfs which stores most of the decentralized nfts in the space um you know filecoin is an incentivization layer on that i think you'll see you'll see more interesting protocols come out of protocol labs that share resources over time in really compelling ways, whether that be like internet service or electricity or, or who knows what else. So I personally would never bet against that team because it's just, you know, it's just an extraordinary group. Um, with respect to, to, to Filecoin in particular, you know, I've been, writing checks in the Filecoin ecosystem, obviously since day one, just wrote another one to Glyph um, uh, a few weeks ago, which offers a yielding on your your Filecoin, which is particularly useful for me. And that's what I like to invest in when I like, when I'm using something and as a user, I find it useful. And then I, you know, and then I write a check. Um, there you know, there seems to be this uptick that's happened in the last, like, not even six months, but kind of four months of people coming back to Filecoin. Like there was, you know, there was some hype uh, around other storage layers in the space. And I think that that has mostly proven to be, you know, not real. And and people are are waking up to the fact that most of the ecosystem uses some form of protocol labs protocol and thusly there will be value that will accrue uh in the protocol labs like broad ecosystem whether that be specifically filecoin or you know a range of different different things who knows uh i just think it's smart for capital allocators to have some exposure there and the only way they can get exposure is filecoin at this point and so you should have some some exposure to that because never bet against Juan Benet. You know, Juan Benet has the technical talent of Vitalik, but is also like a rock star, full toolbox CEO. It's he's you know, um, he he is a unique talent, and mm-hmm. and that permeates into his entire organization. And I'm, uh, you know, again, I I would never bet against him. 
This episode is brought to you by Toku. Toku makes implementing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. With Toku, you get unmatched tax and legal support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. From easy to use token grant award templates through token vesting to managing tax withholdings. Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, token appreciation rights, and even phantom tokens. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it is a huge, complex task to have to comply with global regulations around compensating people with tokens, not to mention the payroll, tax obligations, tax reporting in every country that you employ someone. It is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it is drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. Toku makes this simple for leading teams across the space, protocol labs, DYD. DX Foundation, Mina Foundation, Hedera, Gnosis, Safe, Gitcoin, and a lot more. Reach out to Toku at toku.com forward slash empire or click the link in the description. Yeah. Actually, uh, Tommy, I want to ask you this question. Like, because this is perhaps is one thing that gets overlooked, which is what part of the stack is like not decentralized? And storage, of course, is hugely important, overlooked, I think. Like NFT collectors probably don't even care to, to think about where the the storage itself of the file of said JPEG resides. And a lot of it is in a centralized party, AWS server. And is that truly decentralized? There are multiple parts of the stack that when people talk about decentralization, they just think of it as one kind of one thing. Uh, but as we know, there are different pieces of the stack whether it's your stablecoin of flavor, well, that's not very decentralized. But hey, are you willing to accept that as long as you know the risks and that's okay. But there are, to me, the thesis back then when I wrote the check to uh, protocol labs and today still is, well, yeah, storage is a critical infrastructure layer in the Web3 stack that needs to be decentralized. You need to keep this storage or have the ability to keep it provably safe, decentralized, Distributed and decentralized, two different concepts, but you need to have both, I think. I'm curious, like, if you think there are certain parts of the stack that are, like, overlooked when you think about, hey, we, we're not really paying much attention here, but we probably should. We, we should spend more time. I know there's, like, this broad kind of outcry in the industry that we've spent too far too many dollars on infrastructure and not enough on consumer applications. Mm-hmm. I generally think that's true, but again, the, the the key word of the episode is nuance. There are parts of infrastructure layers that have been neglected. Maybe because they're really tough, they will take longer. I'm curious if you agree, disagree with that, or in, if you guys have invested in particular parts of the stack. Um, yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, not to take your question a different way, but I think the thing that I would love to see in crypto is a website where you input your end product, an NFT or brand, BlockFi, <laughs> or whatever you want, and it shows you where you can get rugged, right? Like just front and center, this is where I can get rugged. Like it's an NFT creator updating the, the metadata and linking somewhere else. It's BlockFi sending all of my assets to FTX. Um, you know, somewhere where I can figure out you know, this is the risk I'm taking by using this L2 is that there's a centralized sequencer run by a team that's nobody really met them or knows who they are. 
and they're not going to include your transaction and you're screwed. Like something like that, that you can visualize and feel, I think would be really helpful next bull run when people are just kind of aping into flashing lights at, on in unaudited contracts. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think that would be hugely valuable. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I, I think we could have more decentralized networks for sharing different types of resources. So like, you know, Helium took a swing at, at internet service provision and that was an er, like early experiment. And I think, you know, we could have more of those. Uh, I think we could have some experiments around, around electricity, around it driving networks like a decentralized Uber. Like there, there are other resources beyond financial transactions and smart contract uh, execution steps that could occupy block space. And, um, and that would be like, that would be a intellectually compelling to, to, to test and be probably valuable over time. Like one of those, one of those resource categories probably gets traction and, and probably disrupts the, the, the traditional business model of, of that industry. Um, you know, we need more things like Filecoin that are, are using decentralized networks to share an important resource. Ryan, what's your, so that brings up like a, a curious point, right? Like the idea with Helium, the idea with Filecoin, the idea with like the D-PIN networks and all this stuff is to move from centralized providers to decentralized providers, right? And generally that means going from like these large data centers that are built ridiculously with retractable roofs and redundant power and backup generators and all this crazy tech to, you know, running your, you know, your latent hardware on your Mac or your phone or stuff like that. Like, it, like, is that your thesis? Is that like that transition will happen because it's cheaper or more scalable or more secure? Or like, do you view a hybrid model or yeah, yeah, if we, about like that shift? If, if, if we, if we go back to like, what our original thesis was around Filecoin and, and Satyab, I imagine you, you shared this at that time, is that like, what is the marginal cost of the unused um, file storage space on your server or your desktop or your laptop? It's zero. So if I get anything for that, it's like actually a more efficient use of my capital. And I used to use this example of, well, you know, you may make like kind of tens of dollars per month or per quarter um, for renting out your your storage space on your on your computer, and that doesn't move the needle for for you and I. But that may enable a kid in India to buy a computer and finance it by renting out the storage space over time. And so, like for that person, it's an incredible enabler, and that's why you know that's why this idea that the crowd could outperform data centers over time. It made sense. And, you know, very frankly, today we observe that the cost of storing on Filecoin or on IPFS is cheaper than, than AWS. So like the supply side has worked out. Unfortunately, the demand side has not worked out. And, you know, you can make the, the, the easy out like, well, the UI isn't there and well, the awareness isn't there and well, you know, this and that. The other thing, people don't want to buy a crypto token to pay for this and that doesn't make sense. Um, 
But I don't think those are actually the reason. I don't have a like, you know, a silver bullet answer of why we haven't solved the demand side. But I do have faith that the demand side will come because the supply side is cheaper. It's cheaper mm-hmm. to store on IPFS with Filecoin than it is in AWS. And that will one day find product market fit. I think it would be, I 100% agree with what you just said, Ryan. I think it would be much more difficult situation if the demand side was not, if the supply side was not there. Um, and my thinking going in, and I think one of the mistakes a lot of people have done on these decentralized file storage systems, call it Filecoin, um, you know, IPFS uh, or Arweave, is assuming that all storage is going to go on a decentralized fashion. And that's just not correct. I think... It is a matter of how much do you value redundancy in your storage layer, meaning it is complementary to your storage. Certain critical, mission critical pieces of data, parts of the web, archiving the web, are, are merit having this added layer of decentralized storage purely for retrievability purposes. Not everything, right? But if you have a very secure thing, well, yeah, you would want to, and not only just use Filecoin IPFS, but also pay, because there's different tiers of storage that you can have in the system. Um, you could pay more to have it sharded and, you know, across different nodes um, and and have a higher degree of confidence in the retrievability of said files. And so I think that flexibility is really um is going to over time be highly valuable to some some players, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's overlooked. Um, I think the the complexity and the tech behind like the proof of retrievability um, is in rec- I think this retrievability and there's another proof here of uh, recovery. I said it earlier, but anyways, proof of proof of replication, re, proof of replication and retrievability are two yeah. different and but proof also, of retrieval. Yeah. Are, so one is like you can produce this, and then the other one is like the speed and latency at which yes. you do so. Yeah. Which those two things are really novel, and I think not fully appreciated, and will end up being useful, as you said, to other different protocols uh, and use cases. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's. Uh, it's it's mission critical. The challenge always is, is the price fair and, uh, you know, how do you value something like Filecoin? One of the interesting projects is sort of like the mining of Filecoin, which is a huge thing and like being able to like sell the future mining rewards and whatnot. So anyways, there's a lot of uh, interesting things happening in that ecosystem. Of- I don't follow it enough. One, I mean, Ryan brought up Helium before, and that was the project that I first started mining like early on in crypto, right? And the the interesting thing is we're talking about how we have supply and we don't have demand, but the the uh, the the crazy part is like historically the wireless companies like Verizon, T-Mobile, AT and T, whatever, Sprint, like they always had this really long battle with the cable companies because the cable companies provided internet to your house. And they were never able to break into wireless and the wireless guys provide a wireless and were never able to break into wireline. So the whole idea that helium comes along and basically they say, Hey, look, you're going to resell your cable, your wireline connection to your house and compete with the wireless companies is an idea that's like breaking decades of industry lock-in for like 
hundred billion dollar companies, right? Like it's a really interesting point, but I mean, obviously eventually these wireline companies are going to wake up and be like, look, you're reselling your internet, pay us. And I think they'll work something out, but it's just an interesting point on demand. And those that's $5 a month to, to join that wireless. It's definitely cheaper. What is your take on where helium is? I haven't been tracking it as closely as I used to, but the the things that irked me were the the token econ side, like never made sense to me. Like the idea of multiple tokens that wrap up to the main helium token, like the econ flows just didn't make sense to me. And if you run the math, it gets difficult. Um, but that being said, like on the flip side, they are one of the most successful projects to ever touch the user, right? Like they've put a million IoT nodes in homes, like now they're doing 5G and they're disrupting the entire telco wireline competition segment, right? The the biggest risk, in my opinion, is that the wireline companies, you know, the guys that you pay for your internet service to your house come along and they say, look, you know, you're breaking your contract by reselling your internet. We're not okay with it. Or they can say, look, this is finally a way we compete with the wireless companies. Give us half your earnings and we're okay with it, right? Something like that. I don't know how it's going to play out, but... Do you, yeah, that do, you think a, yeah. do you think a Starlink just completely disrupts them together with the wireless companies? And it's just like <laughs> yeah, that is a, a, that is a, big a moot point because they just no, got, no, not at all. That's that's a real risk, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. The other um, question that I have there is: Can any project have traction after going ninety-eight percent peak to trough? Right, like when you when you write down. 98% or more yes. of, of community capital. Like how do you, Santiago. how do you recover that community? You just said Filecoin, sir. Filecoin did that. And here we are. <laughs> Filecoin at one point was like 1%. Filecoin at one point was like, I, I keep saying this, like up to like 0.75% of the world's GDP when it like launched. There's still, <laughs> there's still interest. There's still interest. And you just said something interesting on the, on the, on the uh, supply side, if you have something that wasn't like, if you're not making anything on that excess storage, you want to take like rationally game theoretic game theory would say you're willing to take up to one cent or whatever, right? Because it's better than getting nothing. I think it's the same true, not for all ecosystems. Like if you're a JPEG collection and your price just collapsed 99%, you know, like, you know, buy a con deal amigo, like, you know, good luck. This is why I think, again, nuance. I am highly skeptical of artists moving into this direction without being very thoughtful. And music royalties on chain, like all of that, I want to believe it. I just think it's it's challenging because like even Frentech, like the minute you introduce a financial incentive to something that people aren't used to or weren't expecting or would do it purely because of goodwill, I think it really psychologically tampers with that and studies have shown time and time again, like, like there's times that people do things out of the good naturedness of their heart, like charity. The minute you start compensating people for charity, it's like, wait, wait a minute. Like, uh, no, like you shouldn't touch certain things, but if you have excess storage, yeah, sure. I'll take a cent. Uh, excess broadband. Sure. As long as, you know, AT&T doesn't come knocking on my door. And if they do, well, okay, slap me on the wrist. The same with that Airbnb is kind of like treaded this kind of fine line with regulators and condo boards and all this stuff. Um, so I think it depends. Um, I, I think it really I, depends on, on on the type of project what, that you are. 
One example here you guys might remember, um, probably more than I do, but like Jensen, Akash, a bunch of players are doing, you know, use your compute, your GPUs to train these models or for model inference, which is different from training, right? It's like calling the models. Why did a Gollum never take off? Do you guys remember that one? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. There's some wallets that I have all these like made safe and Gollum and Ryan. (laughs) We can go down this list. (laughs) But it's curious, though, because it's like a decade before it, it was useful, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the case of Gollum, um, my my understanding is that, like, the actual tool was just not useful, right? Like, like, to do the rendering uh, on Gollum was sort of decoupled from the token. And then again... There's an example where enough people got burned that a community like exited left and also the team migrated on to do WorldCoin, right? Like a lot of the Gollum team is now um, the leadership team at WorldCoin. And, um, and, and this sort of cuts to, to how much a founder group defines the success of the project over time. You know, Tommy, you and I have talked about founder likability on on your pod before, and and how how that can affect project, but also like founder and billets, right? When you get a founder who starts doing venture allocations and and you know running a fund and doing other projects and things like that, like it's going to have an effect on on project. And I think Gollum was one of those things where they needed the technology to evolve a little bit. They could probably execute it better today than they, they did at that time. And uh, and then it just lost momentum because the community lost interest. However, that's one of those interesting things that we should maybe double click on, which is massive treasury still sitting around. You know, People have these tokens. The treasury is worth more than the fully diluted market cap of the tokens. Why isn't there an activist investor trying to hold people feet to the fire and get them to unwind these enormous treasuries. You know, you get the same thing with Tezos is I think like 10 cents off its crowdfund price. And like, when is there a point where you're like, Hey guys, that's $600 million that you got sitting in Switzerland, maybe just redistribute that to diversify their treasury fairly well before the crash. I think for sure. They raised. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But like today, you know, like there's all that money, you know, is there an argument to to unwind it and redistribute the way that DigixDAO did back in the day, or um, or is that just like locked up capital and that's you know uh, a trust fund for these these founders forever? I think uh, on that point of self policing, like there's two things that come to mind. One, I think there ought to be a role for uh, more activism in the space. Uh, I'm. I think it done in a good way. I think there's been attempts of doing this uh, that have backfired. Um, I think also the industry sometimes is really soft when it comes to really portraying VCs and anyone that tries to like, you know, challenge a team, a founder of saying, Oh, you guys are VCs, you know, like vilifying the VC community, which I think is widely overblown. And I think the VC community time and time again really steps in as in moments during bear markets of critical funding needs. Like there's a time and a place 
And not all VCs are created equal. I agree with that. But <clears throat> I think there is there is a lot of value in having a VC involved. Um, and I think there ought to be more activism. The other one, quite frankly, Ryan, structurally, like, you know, you talk about tasers, a lot of these are receipts. When you invested in this crowd sale, all you got was a thank you card saying, hey, thank you for sending us, uh, you know, a dollar. That's it. So from a legal recourse perspective, there isn't much. And again, this goes back to imagine a world where all these ICOs happened, where you had regulatory clarity, where there was a proper guideline, maybe crowdfunding mechanism rules, guidelines, where there could be an unwind mechanism, maybe triggered by a smart contract, executed by certain parameters. Vitalik has introduced certain blog posts and ideas around, you know, even the DAO, right? It was sort of like the way you go about funding. In an ideal world, if you could like wave a wand, you could say like the same way that bi biotech goes to these kind of milestone driven funding. And if you don't deliver anything, you kind of like, you know, you return capital like that could be semi-automated. You could have a council that is overseen by community members and, and you know, there could be much more structure, but because we've had to kind of operate and tread the needle with whatever your top law firm of choice is telling you to do and the way to structure these things, unfortunately, it opens a vector for the bad actors to exploit that uncertainty. And that is, I think, the point that like regulators need to understand. If you don't have clarity, there's going to be someone that's going to exploit that. And, it's, and, and that's the problem, FTX. They exploited this regulatory jurisdictional thing where they said, okay, we're just going to skirt and circumvent the U.S. and we're going to go through these kind of different jurisdictions. And lo and behold, this is what happens. Whereas the U.S.-based exchanges haven't, right? Kraken and yeah, Coinbase. The, the other thing too, though, is like, it, it's just like the worst and most perverse incentives. Like if you're a founder and you really don't want to work, go to a Tezos, raise a bunch of money from your ecosystem fund and coast. Like why not, right? The sell to them is they need developers and projects the and you know you can actually deliver maybe maybe not i'm calling out tezos but like you could extend this to a lot of other ecosystems and you get a paycheck i guess we could all feel good that they sponsor manchester united and you know it's if we could all get manchester united shirts <laughs> that'd be nice yeah. but not even that <laughs> i was a tezos bull in the past so like you know i, I get it so 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 was i uh, I, yeah. I you know and although sanji you you hit you kind of hit the nail on the head on with respect to jurisdictions. And I know that the three of us sit in <clears throat> different jurisdictions for different reasons, you know, uh, whether U.S., uh, uh, Europe, you know, Switzerland, which I don't consider to be Europe or, you know, I'm, I'm here, here in Cayman today. And it's interesting that um, different projects and different funds come to this realization uh, you know, like we've been, we've been in Cayman for, for a long time now, and we feel like we're entrenching here. And I also feel that like the act of coming here, which is the exception route in the rule, our business partners always tell us that, that, uh, we're one of the only groups that like comes down and does board and does strategic stuff. And like, you know, tries to have presence really here is actually a really healthy process that allows our partners to understand us better and understand our business better. And also the like ceremonial act of like going through it is, is really healthy for decision-making and, and just for focus in the, 
um, uh, in the organization. But, uh, you know, we do have this concept in crypto that I think will broaden to the world over time of jurisdictional competition, where you can very quickly go to the jurisdiction that you you find uh, most attractive. And it's never a one-size-fits-all, although I do note that in today's environment, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that like somewhere in the range of 75 to 80% of projects are finding their way here to Cayman or BVI these days. Would you guys agree with Ryan, that? Can you, can you like fast forward that for us? Like, what does that look like 10, 20 years out? Like everyone's a nomad going to the jurisdiction you want. Like countries don't yeah. exist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the way, the way that we, the way that we look at it, you know, we get a lot of people like crypto natives reach out to me because of, because of, of our, our setup and ask like, Hey, I want to go through this, like, tax optimization project and jurisdictional competition and moving into the ideal location. I'm thinking about Portugal. I'm thinking about Switzerland. I'm thinking about where, you know, where should I go? And the decision tree on it kind of starts out as like, are you American or not? And then if you're not, it's like, okay, do you want to live in the place and have, do you want to have presence? Like, do you need, do you want to be a digital nomad? You know, Doctor, do you accept some taxes or does it have to be zero? And like the decision kind of goes on from there. And then if it's American, it's mostly like, well, you're fucked. And the most you can really do is, is kind of do the Puerto Rico thing. But by the way, Puerto Rico requires 183 days. You better like surfing. You better like that lifestyle. Or you can limit state tax, uh, you know, by going to, to, to Texas or to, to, um, to Florida, Florida or, or, or yeah, or, or some, some other places. And, um, you know, and my, and then you get a lot of Americans saying, like, okay, I want to renounce and I want to move on. And I like, and I'm going to completely optimize. So like, does Portugal make sense for me? I often say no, because you should look for a jurisdiction that where the tax, like the, the tax benefits or tax zero is culturally ingrained into the fabric of the society. So like Cayman, but Cayman is politically impossible for Cayman to ever impose taxes. It is totally unacceptable among Swiss society to impose cap gains taxes or, 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 you know, change the tax code. Portugal is a, is a, a socialist country that made an experiment on a golden visa and like one change in the government could completely upend that. No, it, it already did. It, no, yeah. it already did. They they peeled it back. They were they started to peel it back two years ago. And I said, this is the time to short real estate prices in Lisbon. And there was, to your point, Ryan, it was it just felt like they were going to rug you at some point. Uh, Spain has these two year, three year, four year, but it's it's a novelty. It's not, as you say, the reason of existence for some of these jurisdictions. Yeah, for sure. Whereas others, like they have benefited through so many generations and seen the benefits of, of tax optimization, almost like meditation, where like it takes you a while to realize the benefits and then, and then you're bought in. It takes a, a country, a couple of successive generations to realize that, oh, actually like giving on the tax, on like cap gains tax, especially means that you get more high net worth individuals in the door means that you get a lot more other benefits. And because of that, we're bought in and we'll never change it. 
And there's only a few places around the world where that's really culturally ingrained. And then the place operates reasonably well. So like, sure, you can get zero taxes in, in Panama, but like to do banking, you're going to be put in a red channel in banking because of the whole Panama Papers thing. And to do business is difficult. So it's like, well, you're just doing a different tax. Or like you could go to Luxembourg or Liechtenstein, fine, you have no no taxes, but you get death by a thousand paper cuts on administrative fees and banking fees because the royal families own the banks and they charge you bips in and out for banking transactions. And like, well, that's just a, that's just a tax dressed up in a different in different clothing, right? Yeah. Um, so there's never it, it's uh, interesting as, as in economics. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There is always a trade off. Now, I do think that like it depends. There's two things here that maybe we can double click on. Is one is if you're in crypto, the regulatory environment is probably paramount. Secondary is the tax component. As a project, as a foundation, the, the there is a very clear divide and sort of bipolarity in the world that is increasingly kind of becoming more and more like that. That divide is growing. It may compress and 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 revert, but generally speaking, like you you are seeing. Um, uh, places and jurisdictions like United Arab Emirates, i.e. Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, the UK, uh, the European Union as a whole just being more pro-innovation, pro-crypto, more welcoming of, of, of mm -hmm. the industry um, and other jurisdictions, particularly in the US, is just hostile. It's And maybe uncertain. Like I, I think the courts have given us a glimpse of hope in what could be um, a path forward where the rule of law and like the intent and a path forward, I think increasing the regulators understand that. But right now, like most of the projects that you're funding, they're not in the U S yeah, just a, not a, a couple, a couple points there that also is to add on like recent events, like Celestia aggressively excluded the U S like in a, like you can't access that airdrop if you're in the U S right. They did a really good job. That means that, Builders outside of the U.S. are going to have capital to build, and the, the best projects to build on Celestia will probably not be in the U.S., right? DYDX, aggressively blocking the U.S., right? Eigenlayer, allowing people to, allowing middleware to access nodes, and the nodes can choose and market themselves as geographically not in the U.S., right? So they'll start to, they'll start to earn a premium because they're not worried about, um, you know, being in the U.S. and their projects getting shut down by the government, right? I spoke to one of the largest market makers this week too. Not a single node co-located in the U.S., right? Like, so I, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I agree with you guys. Like, Ryan, you're right. Like, it has to be like jurisdictionally built into their culture. And Santiago, you're right too. Like, it it just makes sense and it's hard to build here. I mean, I think over time, like your point, Ryan, around capital formation will, I think, look vastly different in a world where internet like in a world of internet money uh and i think we've increasingly gone in that direction like i just think uh like my vision like when you first discovered bitcoin it was like huh this you know extreme scenario this separates money and state that probably faces a big resistance in a better version it just keeps governments in check because there is a neutral layer money that exists and so you can't all of a sudden print without serious repercussions even though you are 
the top three kind of reserve assets in the world because now there is an alternative. And that alone brings more responsibility to a system that has gone far irresponsible for too long unchecked. Yeah. It, it, for me, the the draw originally of Bitcoin is my frustration today, which is also, I think, going to be the solution in the long term, which was I got attracted to Bitcoin because of its potentiality for, for crowdfunding. Uh, I was, you know, I was a, a venture capitalist specifically in crowdfunding. And I thought that crowdfunding was one of the most interesting things that, that we've, that we've ever seen. Um, and, you know, obviously polychain, uh, dominate the sort of the ICO era and, and crypto. And we were really excited about this idea of, of crowdfunding. And I think that there will be a new like crowdfunding or new ICO era once we get like the regulatory clarity in the U S that will dwarf the previous ICO era. And like, maybe if the only use case of crypto is crowdfunding, I don't care, Like that's already worth trillions of dollars. That's a great use case. And we don't need to do anything else. We don't need to like have storage or ISPs or energy or anything like that. If we can just do rapid capital formation among people who want to try and experiment together and that should be allowed. And so I, like, I find that to be the, the greatest point of frustration for me in the space today. It's like, everyone's like, oh, there's no use case of crypto. And I was, I'm like, no, there actually was a really cool use case. It's just kind of not allowed temporarily, but truth will prevail. And, and, and I think that will be, uh, I, I think we'll get to a point where we can do this rapid capital formation freely among people who want to, to, to try these experiments among each other. What do you say to people that say, wait a minute, a lot of people got burned. A lot of people didn't know what they were investing in. Like, would you say on one side, total libertarian, hey, it's their money. They already paid taxes on it. Let them do whatever the hell they want to. On another side, it's like, no, wait, let's allow, yeah, let's allow that. But with the right disclosures, information, you know, the you know registration, if you will, but that costs, that's administration. That's, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think like the right, the right, the coherent regulation will be one that is, um, is not patronizing. So it's not like we're trying to protect you from this free internet money that could be worth one cent or 10 cents, but it's free anyway. Uh, but at the same time, like reasonable. So, so for example, like disclosures should be necessary. What we just talked about before that if a project doesn't hit milestones, they redistribute the capital rather than just keep it as a trust fund for the founders. Those things should be implemented. Like there's a really simple straightforward path towards a, a a mature regulation that treats people like adults. Because guess what? If you're going to put your money into highly risky things, like you're an adult, that's fine. You should do that the same way that like, if you're an adult, you can skydive and that has risk. Um, and I feel like it's not that difficult. It, it has been made difficult because of the like political process and the, you know, kind of alternative or ulterior motives that are at play in the, especially in the U.S. political process. But, but yeah, what are your I, what are your thoughts? How do we come out with the solution here? I think we push our solutions for next episode, but I think that there's a lot to talk about on the capital formation side, and also not to cherry pick Eigenlayer, Ryan, but the idea that any middleware provider can now access the capital, aka security through validators by marketing to them, is a form of potentially indirect crowdfunding, right? They get the security they need without having to, you know, go out to talk to investors. But a, a rapid fire question in closing, guys, the 
our crypto Twitter timeline is probably the most bearish as I've ever seen it. Is that a counter indicator for you or not? Santiago? Are you on the for you tab or following? <laughs> Again, nuance. Nuance, gentlemen. Yeah. Nuance big, prevails. Big, uh, Ryan, I will give you credit here. I really like this word, nuance. I will stop I, saying it because people are going to kill me in the, in the comments. We call the but it's nuanced. I, mean, uh, I, I think I've done a really good job of curating and unfollowing and following the right people. I do agree with you. It is. It does feel uh, like look. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world. Um, I think emotions are high. It gets conflated. Crypto Twitter is this really vocal, like the people that are on crypto Twitter, I think tend to be curious and want to vocalize and talk about a lot of things. There's like the the trial going on. There's the whole Israel um, war going on. Like there's always the macro commentary. Uh, there's the hacks that are going on. So I think a lot of it is, look, social media platforms tend to skew negative. It's people that, there's this idea of a vocal minority that I'm highly cognizant of. Whatever you see in DAO forums and especially in Twitter comments, like if people take the time to do this, like they, they want to vent. I think as a world, as a society, we it's very woke. And so that's why you have the anon culture because people at the end of the day want to vocalize. They want to vent and, and they want to do that in a maybe a pseudo-anonymous or a Set, pseudonymous Santiago, like, it's fashion. a good answer, but you're giving me the lawyer's it's, it's, answer. It's a rapid fire. Look, I am allocating. I, I am bullish. I, I, it doesn't compute in my thinking. It just doesn't. Like, yeah. I think it's a counter like, indicator. I think it's a good time to allocate purely because the number. It's, it's a matter of price. Things have been left for dead. Ryan, you're up. Santiago, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm a buyer here, but uh, you know, Ryan. So very quickly, rapid fire, because we've got to wrap it up and clearly just construction in our office is wrapping us up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we're going to look back on this as, as the bottom of the trough, uh, whether it's now plus six months or whether it's, it, whether this is like, you know, the, the absolute trough trough. Um, this is a great time to be accumulating high quality assets because this space matters and there are use cases that matter in this space and that, that in the end will prevail. So Ryan, you got Tommy, a, thanks guys. Got a picture of this Tommy, Tommy, I'm going to ask you, no, I'm going <laughs> to ask you a fire question here, uh, around allocation, allocating as famously was said by one of the uh, witnesses in the FTX case. Um, do you okay. know the distinction between solvency and liquidity? And are you allocating? <laughs> That's a good one. We'll cover it next episode. <laughs> All right, gents.